Please stand for the reading of God's word if you are able. First Peter three thirteen. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the, righteousness, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's word. Amen. What would you get if you squeezed a mandarin? Well, let's see. You get a flat skin, that's for sure. Uh, but you get the pulp, the juice, some seeds. You get what's inside it. Now, what if we squeezed a lemon? What would we get? Something a little more bitter, but you get exactly what's inside. The lemon juice, the pulp, and the seeds. What if you squeezed a Christian? Not in this way. <laughs> what if you squeeze the Christian? What would you get? You would get whatever's inside. Uh, Christians, evangelical Christians, are, I think, in the process of being squeezed a little more and more as our culture moves further and further into a post-Christian culture. Uh, a Pew Research Center report released just last week said that over the past, well, the title of it was, in the USA, decline of Christianity continues at a rapid pace. And they cite that those who claim to be Christian has dropped 12% over the past decade. Another study showed that since 2016, for every person who had a more positive view of evangelical Christianities, there are six people who have a more negative view of evangelical Christianity. Teenagers, you are in the front line of a cultural clash. 
the majority of the major influences in your lives and in our lives are post-Christian and promoting progressive values rather than Christian values. Now, some of those progressive values are, are wonderful as they align with Christ, and many of them are in direct conflict with Christ. We think of the value of life, our identity, the exclusivity of Christ, our view of human nature, even view of God or of the picture of Christ, is the cultural view of these is in conflict with the Christian view. And what has been happening a little more and more isn't simply that we have a disagreement, but that there is an expectation and a cultural pressure to align with the progressive values. Now, some have faced this a lot more than I have. Um, but many of us can be intimidated, whether in school or in the workplace, in our neighborhood, to stand for Christ. What we're going through pales in comparison to what the early church was enduring and the readers of First Peter were confronting. The question is, how will we respond if the pressure even gets greater? And, of course, the answer is we are going to respond based on whatever is inside of us. Our Father, there's so much in, in your word that uh, we can't cover <laughs> the vastness of, of what you offer us today. But I pray that I and each one of us would uh, receive from your spirit that which speaks to us where we live right now that we might fill ourselves with the fullness of God by seeing the treasures that you offer us to live with and live through. Meet us today where we are. In Christ we pray. The title of this series in First Peter is living in, Reflecting Christ in a Post-Christian Culture. And today, we're really looking at how do we do that? What do we need to put inside of us to live out our lives the way Christ wants us to live out, even if we're a little odd today? And uh, so I want to begin where Peter begins in the book itself, and that is with our identity. We don't see it in this particular passage we've read this morning, but it's clear in the book itself that our identity and how we see ourselves is critical to the way we live. It impacts the way we view ourselves, what we invest in, and how we'll respond to the pressure from outside. For instance, if, if my identity was in the fact that I'm an A student, which it would never be my identity, <laughs> uh, if my identity was being an A student, my view of myself would be determined on my report card or my transcript. If I'm getting all A's, I would feel great about myself. If I got a couple B's, I would be down on myself and beating myself up. I would be investing in my studies. And if the voice of my teacher was critical, then I would begin to cave in and do 
what my teacher is asking me to do. And so our identity is critical. It's what we're going to get our sense of self, what we invest in, and what voices mean the most to us. And so the best summary within the book itself is from a, a verse that's already been read, and that's 1 Peter 2, 9, where he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, where do you get your identity? Today, the, the major movement of identity is called expressive individualism. And what that means is you have to find yourself, you need to look inside yourself and find out who you are by looking inward. And then you live that out in a very expressive way. It's the message of a lot of Disney flicks in addition to so much that's being taught in schools, through the media, and is certainly individualist expressions through social media. But the question is, where, from where do you get your identity? Do you look, look inward? If I look inward into myself, if I'm honest with myself, which I usually am not, I deny, I live in denial about my weaknesses and my faults. I, I justify my wrong thinking, my bad attitudes, but when I'm really honest with myself, I see somebody who is greedy, who is jealous, who is lustful, who is self-centered, and who's selfish. Now, if I look inside, that's my identity. Should I live out that identity with you? I think I would lose my job. Uh, no. What's happening today, of course, is people are looking inside and they are either justifying what they see or they're in denial about what they see. But of course, we were made in God's image. See, we don't look inward to find our identity. We look upward. We don't look outward from, to hear what, how other people view us. We look upward. And God says we are each made in the image of God. And the, the, the inward person I see now is not who I am or who I was created to be. It is the fallen person, the, the broken person inside me that Christ wants to transform. And he says here, this, this is who you are in Jesus Christ. You are chosen. At the very beginning of the, the, the book, he says, you are chosen. You know what that means? It means you are loved. You are loved before you were ever created. You were in the heart of God, in the heart of the Son of God. When Jesus Christ climbed Calvary, you were in his heart. He died for you. He gave it all for you. That's who you are. You are so beloved that even when you fail, Christ washes away those sins, draws us to ourselves and say, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Follow me. Become the person you were created to be. You are chosen and 
Here it says you're the chosen race. Israel was chosen to be a light to the world, a beacon where everyone around, if they wanted to know who God is, they could look at Israel. They were a holy priesthood. What is a priesthood? The priest is the one who stands between God and man. He brings God to man through the word of God. He brings man to God through the sacrifices which took away the sin to connect people to God. You are a holy priesthood. Think of all the great jobs you could have. There is none better than being a person who is actually bringing God to people and bringing people to God. I mean, a lot of us want to be God. We can't be. There's only one God. But we can be the conduit to God for people. That's who we are. And then thirdly, it says we are a people for God's possession. It means we're owned by God. We've been purchased with a price, therefore, let's glorify God in our lives. We, we, it's in this individualistic Western culture, uh, it's not popular to say you're owned by somebody. But we all are owned by something. Uh, Bob Dylan uh, sang the song, you're gonna serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're gonna serve somebody. And we can expand that. You may serve yourself or your, your passions. And if you serve your passions, you are a slave to your passions and your emotions. You can serve the culture. If you're gonna serve the culture or the voices around you, you're gonna compromise to that culture. But if you serve the Lord, if you know you belong to the Lord, you are going to live your life for the Lord, and that's when your life thrives. Know your identity. Don't look inward, look upward. And we, when we live out our identity, being the people God has called us to be and created us to be, Peter expects that we're going to be living out this identity and we're going to be kind and love, loving and good and positive people who are, who are other-centered, not self-centered. And it expects us to be uh, doing what is good. And so he begins this particular passage, says, Now who is there to harm you if... troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, we live in a culture, we may be getting squeezed by the culture, but we are to live out Christ, and that is good, and he, and, and he says, you don't need to be intimidated by the culture. Don't have fear Don't be troubled by it. First of all, because if you do good, most people respond positively. You see, 
people, even if they disagree with us, no matter what voices you hear in, in the media or you read, you hear in school, most people are not out to get Christians. They see us as people who have particular views, and they're going to look at us by how we interact with them, how we live out our lives with them. And that's why Peter says here it's, almost, it's a rhetorical question. Now, who's there to harm you if you're zealous for being good? If you actually go out and do good, who really wants, is looking for people who do good? I'm going to get you. Uh, my neighborhood, everybody knows I'm a minister, and I know uh, one of the neighbors when they moved in, I think kind of retracted from us because they knew I was a minister, and it was hard to, to really get to know them. No, they weren't bad to us or anything, but they just had a wall up. And, you know, Karen and I do good things in the neighborhood. I'll uh, snowblow the, the single mom's house during the snowstorms. I'll give the snowblower to, to my other friend and that neighbor, uh, to the widow next door. I'm at her disposal to do anything she needs. She knows she can call on me at any time. And we do good. And, and you know, the people in the neighborhood like us. They probably disagree. Most of them disagree with our views. Uh, but they, they like us. And even the person where the wall was has, you know, baked us cookies and, uh, you know, done things for us. So, uh, you know, don't think everybody's out to get us. Sometimes we have this persecution complex. And even as I began this sermon, I hope you weren't like, oh boy, the world's caving in on us and we're going to be so confined and so persecuted. And, you know, most people, the people we're living with, they're going to appreciate us for who we are. That's, that's what people do. Now, are, will there be those who, who, who just because of our faith will harden their hearts toward us? Yes, they did it to Jesus. I mean, he was perfect. He was, he was filled with goodness and love and kindness and empathy. Uh, he healed and touched. He transformed people's lives. And yet he was so hated, they crucified him. So, yeah, there are those who, who will who will persecute, who will mistreat. There can be suffering. And you know, but he says here, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Now, I want to see if many hands, how many when you suffer say, what a blessing! Okay, Peter does. Peter raises his hand and says, yes, what a blessing. We look at the suffering because we're caught up in the physical dimension. But if we move into the spiritual dimension, we will see that the suffering is actually a blessing. Uh, the Apostle Paul, when he was talking about the suffering and how he was caring about the dying of Christ in his life, he said this, so we don't lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then he says, for this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So he's saying two blessings here of suffering. One is the eternal rewards. The second is what's happening inside you the renewal that's happening in you. Because when we suffer, 
almost every Christian I know does a lot more praying, does a lot more reading of the scripture, draws much closer to the Lord than when we're not suffering. We're being renewed. We are being transformed through the trials. Considered all joy when you encounter various trials. Oh, no. Because what? They are maturing us and making us complete in Christ. They are making us into the people we were meant to be. It's not about what we have, but about who we are and who we are becoming. And suffering also puts us on a stage. People know what we're going through, and they begin looking at us. And the way we live that out can bring glory to Jesus Christ. So let's transform the way we look at persecution and suffering. It's a blessing. And we don't need to fear or be troubled if in our hearts we honor Christ as Lord. Verses 14 and 15. See, we will gain this more spiritual perspective if we honor Christ as Lord. And this is probably, perhaps the most critical aspect to the way we live out our faith. It is the key issue through which we will either stand with Christ or we will compromise our faith. If we have become Christians and we are Christians only because of the goodies that we get as Christians, then our response in suffering is we will cave. We will collapse. But if we are Christians because Jesus Christ is Lord, this verse is saying, honor him as holy as Lord and as holy. When I came to the Christian life, it was, it was a nice change. Uh, I was relieved from the anxiety they had, I had. It was an answer to prayer. Uh, I had a new community. It was all good. And uh, I remember going to a conference, and uh, I was with all these Christians, these new friends, singing these songs, and then I heard this message. He said, you know, God didn't save you for your sake. He saved you for his sake. I said, wait a second. No, no, no. I remember the guy said, if you want an abundant life, you accept Jesus. And I said, that's it. I want an abundant life. He loves me. And, I, and then it, it struck me. He says, that's right. Christ. It's really about Christ and his glory. And that was a moment, which I wish I kept every day, but it was a moment when I said, this is really about Jesus Christ. It's about his glory. And that was a moment I was honoring Christ as holy, as worthy. And the beauty of it is that when we do that, our life does fall into place. And our inner lives will thrive and be renewed. But that's the key. What is the center for us? What are we holding up? What is driving our lives? Is it the voices of the people around us? Is it the desire to be accepted within our culture? Or is it Christ as Lord? That will determine if we compromise 
if we fade in our faith or whether we will stand for Jesus Christ. When you are feeling the pressure, do you put Christ in his rightful places first? Do you honor him as being holy? And if you do, you may well be marginalized, mistreated, despised. And when you respond with love and acceptance and grace, you become a testimony to the glory of Jesus Christ. And so Peter continues, he said, you know, when this happens, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, etc. But notice it, it says, some people are going to see your response to suffering and go, that's different. That's, I, I could never do that. I could never have that peace. I could never respond with hate, with love. What's going on in you? I mean, my wife uh, has faced a lot of criticism uh, from one of her bosses. Uh, the boss seems to have it out for Karen. It's has denigrated Karen to many people. Karen's co-workers see it. They come to Karen and says, what is it? What does she have? Why is she against you? What does she have against you? You know, uh, and Karen's response is always grace and love. And some people are like, oh, you're, you're, you're weak. But there's one of her friends said, I can see that you really live by your faith. It's a testimony she stood out. And so Paul says, Peter says, yeah, be that testimony, but are you ready? Have you prepared what to say to somebody if they say, you know, you're different? How, how, are you, how can you respond that way? What are you going to say? And, uh, and again, it says, be prepared. Don't try to come up with it off the cuff when it's entered. Think about this beforehand. First thing, live out the faith in a way that you stand out so differently than everybody else, that you're actually loving like Christ is. And then people will be, you know, what's going on? And uh, I had this experience with uh, my neighbor, Tim. Uh, we have a good relationship, and uh, he said, you know, Hearing about Karen's cancer diagnosis, uh, he asked me, he says, how, how are you doing, Bruce? And I said, I'm doing fine because Karen is a trooper. The way she is handling this, if, if she was falling apart, I'd be falling apart, but the way she's handling this just gives me strength and courage. Now, I could have left it at that and said, isn't that great? But then I thought, you know, well, you tie it to God. And she's doing great because of her faith in Jesus Christ. But what does that really mean to my neighbor? So I say, got to unpack that. Why is her faith? How is her faith giving her stability and, and strength during uh, fighting the cancer? And so I said, 
She is, her faith in Christ. Because she knows no matter what the end result is, because of what Christ has done for her, she will be with him in eternity. It'll be a stepping stone into the presence of God. And she knows that God loves her. Even though she could look at the cancer and say, why did you do this, God? But she looks at the cross and sees that God became man to die for her, took her sins, suffered crucifixion and humiliation for her. And she knows this is how much God loves her, and so she can trust that no matter what happens, that loving God is not only walking with her, but in some way, it is a loving outcome itself. And so, because she was able to stand out, we're prepared with a defense, we're able to communicate a verbal testimony of Jesus Christ. Think about it. Where are you going to stand out? And are you ready to tell, say, well, it's because of Jesus? Or are you able to articulate the reason for the hope that's in you. So what we're seeing is for us to really stand for Christ as we're squeezed, to know your identity, embrace your identity in Christ. Make, set Christ up as Lord, as holy in your lives. And then look opportunity. Seize the opportunity. And the fourth point is, is not as clear as the rest, uh, as you can see by these things about Jesus going to preach and the spirits in prison and baptism saves you. But we can simplify it by pointing out that what he's really saying is be grounded in gospel truth. He starts with the idea of Christ's suffering. And what he's saying in this is, if you look at the gospel, you will see the suffering Christ was not a defeat, it was a victory. If you are suffering for Christ, realize that Christ's suffering is not a defeat, it's the ultimate victory. Verse 18, yes. For Christ also suffered once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So he's pointing to your, your suffering. Well, Christ suffered. And, and it looked like he was defeated. I mean, imagine uh, what, what were they the Jewish leader is doing. And that Friday as Jesus' body is taken off. They had mocked him. They had railed against him. They had, at the foot of the cross, they had declared victory over him. If you are the son of God, step down. But you didn't, did you? Proves we're right and you were a blasphemer. They had the victory, it seemed. And sometimes in your lives, it might seem like they have the victory. Those who might mock, those who might marginalize you, they have the victory. And so he says, no, 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 look at Christ. It was his victory. Because through his death, he died for our sins. 
he who was without sin. And only if you're without sin can you take someone else's sin. That's why I can never take your sin. Because if you're unrighteous, you have to pay for your own sin. But Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous, and me, who was unrighteous, he took my sin, which was the barrier between me and God. God, me, my sin, the one who was perfect and holy, took my sin out of the way. And so, it's the greatest victory. Then he goes, and then he's made alive. You see, Good Friday was the darkest day in human history. It's the day the creature crucified the creator. But we call it Good Friday. Good Friday? Yes, because when he rose from the dead, he proved, he proved everything he had ever taught. He proved that I have now given you a way to God. I have proven that my promise that you will live forever with God is true. It is the greatest victory. And verse 22 adds to that and he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is now at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers all being subjected to him. What? His suffering brought the victory of bringing us to God, but bringing all of creation and the entire spiritual realm under the authority of Jesus Christ. It looked like the persecutors had won. In reality, they had created the scenario whereby Jesus is the victory of ev- the victor of everything. So when you are suffering, do you see it as a defeat? Or is it a victory? you along with Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how much you want me to get into these other parts of the passage, but uh, let me just do a quick uh, rundown of, of what, he's, what I believe he's trying to say and why he says uh, what he does. So in verse 19 he says, He went in spirit and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when Christ's patience awaited in the days of Noah when the ark was being prepared in which a few, that's eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, we want to first say, why does he go to this story? My answer is, I don't know. Now, uh, my best guess is that he is trying to bring into the memory of those who are being mocked and marginalized a time when someone else was being mocked and marginalized. Noah. The entire world was against God, except for eight people. Talk about being marginalized and alone. And he said, what happened during those days? Well, one of the interpretations is what happened during those days is Christ himself was preaching through Noah. In his spirit, he preached to Noah to those people who are now lost, to those who are in spiritual prison right now. Which makes sense. And I I lean toward that, and that's what he's trying to say here, is, is you had this entire group of people mocking Jesus, excuse me, Noah, 
and his faith, building an ark when it never rained. Uh, and yet, who's the victor? Noah's the victor because he's in the ark. Another possible interpretation is that he's speaking of a spiritual world here. A spirit world which uh, the book of Enoch, which a lot of Jewish people would know, uh, present the, the time of Noah when uh, it says the sons of God, and they see those as angelic beings, uh, married, came into the daughters of men, which were human women. And they created a deformed race and a, certainly an anti-God race. And it's one of the reasons the flood was so critical and important because it wasn't just judging human sin, but angelic and demonic sin as well. And that those spirits were disobedient during Noah's day. And Jesus, in his death, did proclaim victory to them. And again, he chooses the Noah's day because it's so similar to Peter's day. Um, I, I lean toward the former, but the message he's trying to give is, this is not a defeat, it's a victory. And then he moves forward and says, and, and we have a picture here that baptism now corresponds to. And that picture is, you have eight people in an ark, while the waters rage around them, bringing judgment, but they are saved through the waters of judgment because they're in the ark. Now, corresponding to that, baptism saves you. And what he's saying there, I believe, is not that the water saves you. It's very clear. It's not the cleansing of dirt. It's not, it's not to do with the water. It's what's going on in the dynamic of your heart, your desire for a good conscience. That would mean, why would I desire a good conscience? Because I know I have a bad conscience, because I know I have sin. I know I need a cleansing. And so I get in the ark. And baptism is going to picture the judgment of God around me. But I'm in the ark, and I go down into the waters of judgment, and I come up a new creature in Christ. The ark itself, of course, is Jesus Christ. The judgment of God is going to fall on those who are not in Christ. And so baptism gives us a picture of that. And then he says, and of course that comes through the resurrection. The victory is the resurrection and now the authority of Christ overall. So again, the point he's getting at is when you think it's a defeat, all the people mocking Noah must have been laughing hilariously when they got in an ark before it started raining. They looked like the fools, but in the end, the tables were turned, and it was those outside that actually suffered judgment, and those inside were saved. They were with the victory of Christ. Scott McKnight, one of the commentators, writes this, I've known people who were fired because they were honest, people whose children suffered severe forms of ostracism because they sought to live out Christian lives, people whose careers were jeopardized because of their faith, and people who simply felt out of it because they refused to run with the crowd. 
if you're in any of those categories or will be. I hope these truths minister to your heart. And he continues, imagine you're a teenager where the majority of high schools, schoolers drink alcohol to the point of drunkenness on a semi-regular basis, where many of them smoke pot or use addictive drugs, or whether they go to bed with other teenagers in a casual manner, where the same teenage society knows who does these things and who does not. Then imagine that you would not be accepted if you refused to go along with these activities. How do you respond? You're going to respond when you're squeezed by giving out what's inside you. Let's have the right stuff inside us. Let's find our identity in Christ. Let's honor him as Lord and as holy. Let us see this not as, a, as an opportunity to make Christ known and let us seize the victory. We're not defeated. We're victorious with Christ. Our Father, we thank you for your word and how uh, it spoke into a pre-Christian culture 2,000 years ago. So appropriate for a post-Christian culture today. May, Lord, may, may these truths be in my heart. May they be what grounds me and comes out of me when you pressure me. May that be true for each one of us. In Christ, we pray. Amen.